Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and joining me today is James Thompson, Shonically Economist at the Australian Financial Review. G'day, James. Hello, Alan. Thanks for having me. So there's three Shonaclears present, because um, I was two of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. I did, it, uh, the, I did um, it twice, but uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. But the, the Chook House is a very uh, broad church. It is indeed. <laughs> yes. and, um, you're doing a great job on Shonaclears, if I may say. Thank you. Very kind. Um, you and Tony Boyd, your joint columnist. I wish I had someone joint when I did it. Was it. It's a great system and Tony's so good to work with. So we were able to sort of cover the whole gamut and work together really well. It's, it's really, and he, he's fantastic. So it's good. Yeah, he is. That's right. Um, and uh, well, both of you worked for Business Spectator, of course. We did. Yes. <laughs> and the goes glory early years of Business Spectator. It's great fun. Yeah. And uh, so welcome to the Money Cafe. And here we are in the Short Straw Cafe in Hawthorne. Beautiful place. Us- not the usual cafe, but that's okay. We're just uh, changing venues and it's a lovely place. Um, so listen, let's get, get let's get stuck into some topics. This um, RBA meeting this week, have you, did you, have you been covering that? I've been, well, I guess everyone's looking at what the RBA is going to do. Um, it's fascinating where interest rates are going around the world. I think the RBA's obviously had this fight with the bond vigilantes. But that's being replicated across the world at the moment. Yeah, it so, is. That's right. Um, and and all central banks are sort of butting up against the bond market in 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 ways that we haven't seen for a while, which yeah, is fascinating. Right. And and the Reserve Bank, well, they actually took on the Reserve Bank's 0.1 percent target for the three-year yield. Yeah. And completely and defeated. Won. <laughs> won, totally beat the, the Reserve Bank, so they capitulated on Tuesday. Yeah. And now I guess the question is where what's the, where does the RBA go next or, or when do they go next? And I think that's really sort of difficult to see. Um, it's obviously the, the question, I guess I've got two questions. One is some of these problems that the RBA's got around inflation, do they get solved by an interest rate rise? Like in, r- raising interest rates, does it fix supply chains? Does no, of course not. Does it open the borders and Absolutely let you, more labour in? So that's that's sort of one interesting point. And then the other point is Australia's indebtedness. How much does that weigh on the RBA's mind before they move? I think it must weigh a lot, you know. I, I mean, I think the, it's, it's not just a housing crisis, it's a monetary policy crisis in the sense that it really restricts what the RBA can do, mm. it seems to me. Um, and they can't respond to inflation in the way that they would normally do it. Yeah, do you think that's because it's a different type of inflation, though? Like because the pandemic has put these restrictions in and changed sort of markets artificially, does that change the game? Well, a they reckon that's a, that's a, that's a transitory short-term inflation, which is probably right. Probably. Question is, is, is there going to be long-term inflation, sustainable yeah. inflation, caused by wages going up? Uh, and I reckon it probably will be uh, well, uh, in yeah. time. Yeah. Wages need to rise; they will rise. Um, immigration will stay low. There'll be less. Um, supply of labour, demand. Mm. Everyone, nobody can find any workers at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Particularly in you know specialist roles, and some of these transitory factors could sort of hang around so long that you start to wonder, you know, that <laughs> how long the transitory period really is. So that that'll be interesting. Like, I don't think supply chains are going to sort themselves out really quickly. Um, it just they just don't bounce back like yeah. that. So that'll be interesting. I suppose the one thing that is relevant to listeners is that um, uh, fixed, mor- fixed mortgage rates are going up now. Yes, have been rising for a few months. Yep, will continue to rise now because the bond ra- because the bond rates are rising. Yes, um, and the reserve bank's no longer controlling it. So, 
um, they're going to come up and meet the variables because the fixed rates have been lower than the variable rates, haven't they? Yes, and everyone's moved into them. Um, I, I must say with the exception of myself because I was probably a bit lazy to take advantage of those. But there could be a bit of a rude awakening as those fixed rates rise faster than people might have thought, I guess. Well, and then they come up for renewal. Yeah. Yeah, sure, that's right. So do people come out of those fixed rates onto much higher variable rates? Or not much higher, but higher enough that it, higher. It, that it feels, you know, like a, uh, a bit of an impost? Well, the variable rate is set according to the cash rate, So that and the Reserve Bank's still saying they're not going to do anything with that till 2023. Yes. Do you believe them, Alan? Well, the market thinks there'll be <laughs> three or four rate hikes net, next year, yes. right? That's what's being priced into... The cash rate futures. Mm. So where where do you where, where do you think it lands? Well, probably early twenty twenty three. I mean, yeah. didn't I mean what's his name? Phil Lowe didn't say when in twenty twenty three. No, particularly it no. was kind of twenty twenty three. So yeah, although it's interesting, even the Fed's starting to move around a bit now. I, I think the latest read this morning was that nine Fed members think there's going to be a, a rate rise in the in the US in the second half of 2022. Right. So that that maybe that puts the second half of 2022 on the radar here as well. Maybe. Hard, hard to say, but um, do you, I, I guess the, the, the RBA's issue now is a credibility. The, the bond market's given them a, a whack and how much do we believe Phil Lowe? How, can, can he stay to, can yeah. he hold off till 2023? Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. The other big news of the week is COP26. Um, how do you think that's gone? Well, it's a bit hard to say. I, I haven't, I haven't, I don't get the sense that there's a huge amount of progress, and and certainly Australia's um, appearance there has been a bit dented by our submarine um, travails. Um, I, I, I think it's been the interesting part for me is how aggressive the business people on the ground have been in sort of urging you know, more action, more action, whether that's, you know, Jeff Bezos was there or Andrew Forrest has been very prominent. And and so I think I still have the sense that it's business that's going to be really pushing hard on, on yeah. you know, to make moves rather than government, who all seem a little muddled and, you know, they, they want to be in the forestry agreement, they don't want to be in the methane agreement, they want to be in the fossil fuel, you know. So I, I still think business is probably the driving force here. Um which is it is that's right. M- maybe not perfect, but but at least business is reading the play from capital markets who are telling them, you know, very very clearly, you need to have a sustainability plan and action. And if you don't, we'll sell you. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, the the lead story in the Financial Times this morning is that um, uh, I'm just trying to remember now the um, investment community or some I think it's Mark Carney, the former go- yes. Bank of England governor, is saying that yep. investment investors have mobilised uh, $130 trillion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's a lot of money. Yeah, Carney's in charge of, or not in charge, but he's sort of leading this uh, group of sort of 60 banks and financial institutions around the world who are sort of investing in along similar responsible principles. So it's just that weight of money, like... You know, a banker said to me a few weeks ago, it took 15 years for people to get out of coal and it's taken 15 months for people to get out of oil, like the the investors to get out of oil, the, the, the speed at which people have moved. And yeah, there's some, you know, the, the recent oil price spike has pulled some people back into those, those areas, but 
generally institutions aren't going to touch that stuff. And what do you, do you have an opinion about how Scott Morrison's gone over there? I don't think fantastically. Um, no, I don't, I don't, I think. He, di- he didn't go with a great um, sense of commitment. I, I do find it sort of difficult, this, this argument that he runs that, you know, we'll do what's in Australia's best interests and we'll do it from Australia's point of view. I understand where he's coming from, but it's a global issue and, you know, this conference is about having a global view of that. And, yeah. and so that, that's really jarred a little bit with me that, you know, you can take a very Australian insular view of a global, you know, at a time when you're supposed to be outward looking. Right, and particularly since the, the, globe, the Australian insular view is to not do anything. Yes, well, well, that's, it's, well it's to that's sort of pretend problem. you're doing something and then um, well, push, done, kick the can down the road. The only thing he's changed is his language. Yes, yes, that, that's, really? yeah, the, the um, we're still betting heavily on uh, technology breakthroughs saving us and maybe they will, maybe they won't. Hey, um, just changing the subject completely, what, what are you, what's going on with Com- Commonwealth Bank moving into cryptocurrency? Yeah, this is fascinating, I reckon. So from next year, you'll be able to, if you're a Combank customer, you'll be able to jump on the Combank app and buy, sell, hold cryptocurrencies, 10 cryptocurrencies and most of the big ones, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, Will they be held in your bank account or a a separate account on the app? No, in a separate account through a a US custodian called Gemini, which um, is uh, a big exchange and custodian in the US owned by the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, so you you made a bit of a fuss about that in your column uh, (laughs) yesterday, and that's fair enough. I mean, it was kind of interesting because the Winklevoss twins have been pioneers in crypto. Well, yeah, they they really... After Mark Zuckerberg... Dud uh, them. them, yeah. <laughs> they took, I think they got $65 million out of the settlement with Facebook and about $10 million of that apparently, this is the story, that they put into cryptocurrencies in 2012 and they've just kept expanding in this area. That must be worth billions now. They're, they're, the pair of them are worth $6 billion US. So, you know, okay, Facebook didn't quite work for them, but they've had a, a good sort of second innings. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. And look, this... This, thing, this business they own, Gemini, has sort of tried to be highly regulated, you know, almost a traditional custodian in exchange um, in the Bitcoin world, sort of marketing itself as the safe haven in the Wild West. Um, so CBA is using them. It's a low-risk offering that CBA is going into. So if you have Bitcoin now, you won't be able to add it into your Combank account. It's only – it's a sort of closed-loop ecosystem. So – but look, I think this is really interesting that the older, you know, the biggest bank and you would think might be one of the more conservative is trying to push into these new areas. I don't think they quite know what, you know, they see the demand. They don't know where Bitcoin's going to go, but they're going I said, uh, uh, I said on the ABC News last night that it's a bit like the punk, when, when the punk rock group, the, the Damned, played at Albert Hall. <laughs> that is very, that's a very good analogy. Um... And, and I think to, to, to take that a bit further, I'm not sure the promoters, um, Matt Common and the board of CBA, I'm not sure they entirely know what they're getting into, but they sort of sense the mood is shifting and they want to be part of it. There's a bit of a backlash. I noticed people saying they're legitimising Bitcoin and crypto when they're really nothing at all and they shouldn't be doing that. So. And I think that's true. They are legitimising it. They um, are, definitely. The question is whether that's a bad thing or not. I, I yeah. personally don't think it is a bad thing. It's fine. Uh, 
no. I, I mean, it is interesting, and Common was very, um, very, you know, quite strong on this when he said it. That you know, when you hit the button to buy Bitcoin or whatever um, cryptocurrency you buy, a, a, a message will come up on the screen saying, "Only invest what you can afford to lose." And, and yeah, okay, that's good investment advice anyway, I guess. But um, it does speak to the speculative oh, so nature. A, so they've got a, they've got a uh, health warning. A health up. warning, yeah. <laughs> so I think the juxtaposition of CBA, you know, three years on from the Royal Commission um, selling a product that involves a health warning is quite interesting. But uh, look, you know. It'll be interesting to see whether the other banks follow. It is. It, it will. And, and I think. Common doesn't mind sort of pushing the envelope a bit. You know, he, he sees that the banks have become a little bit commoditized, and he doesn't want – he wants to put CBA apart. And yeah. They're definitely the most interesting bank at the moment. They're, yeah. they're doing different things and – Do you think it's fair to say that the least interesting bank at the moment is Westpac? Oh, well, no. no they're interesting, but in a different way. Um, it was a really sort of s- strange result uh, in, in many ways on, on earlier this week. The, the result itself was okay. They've got a bit of momentum in mortgages and a little bit of momentum in business, but they're just coming from so far back. They, they've got this big cost-cutting plan um, that says they'll get costs down from about $14 billion to $8 billion in the next three years, but costs went up, uh, particularly in the second half of the year just gone, and the market just doesn't believe that they're going to be able to rip these costs out. And, and was that turn because they had to hire a whole lot of people to deal with compliance problems? Well, more mortgage processing. Right. Yeah, so I think there was $55 million of new resources in the last six months that went into dealing with the massive amount of mortgages they've, they're processing. So that's not bad cost, is it? I mean, if, you, if you're having to hire people to deal with business, that's okay. That's be? true, yeah. But, but can you take those costs out over time? You know, if you keep adding to the cost base, how do you get it back down again? No, I but if you're adding fair. to revenue at the same time, I mean, who cares? Well, but this is the problem. He is adding to revenue, but margins are coming down because to get back in the mortgage game, he's uh, sacrificing oh, price. So you've got this really interesting sort of balance between, yeah, we chase revenue, but that comes at the expense of profit, and then expenses are rising as well. So the, the market that, just hasn't got that. But isn't that – I would have thought that was something happening to all the banks because they're having to – all of them are dealing with the same pricing and they're all having to hire people to, to deal with the flood of mortgages that's going on. Yes, but Westpac was uh, Westpac had some mortgage processing, bigger mortgage processing problems previously, and so they're trying to fight their way back into the market and retain share. So I think their pricing's a little bit keener than everyone else and their processing expenses are a little bit higher than everyone else at the moment. So right. you're right, every, it's happening to everyone, but Westpac's just coming from that little bit further back and so they're having to give up a bit more. And what do you reckon about house prices? Well, it was really interesting in Westpac's result. There was this there was this f- stat I found interesting that the average house, the average loan written in the last 6 months was 377 grand, which was up 10% over 12 months and you sort of think okay, that makes sense. But you go back 2 years and it's basically steady it. In 2019 it was 372,000. So what's going on there? And the way Peter King, the Westpac CEO, explains it is it's sort of the housing haves and have-nots. The haves who are in the market, you know, they're trading up and, and, you know, their loan size isn't moving that much. Their incomes have gone up a little bit. The savings have gone up a little bit. So But their loan size hasn't moved that much in Westpac's book anyway. 
But what he's worried about is the people who have no chance of getting into the market and the Westpac economics team have done the stats. If you're in Sydney, 35% of your income for five years will be used to save a deposit and then pay their first five years of the mortgage. 35%, that's a fair fair whack. Well, I saw a graph this morning showing, purporting to show that the average mortgage has gone up 100,000 in the past 12 months. Yeah. To 500 and something. So, I mean, maybe Westpac's got um, different customers. Yeah, maybe they have less first-home buyers, which um, the first-home buyers have been active in the last little while. So, But, yeah, it, it's interesting these different I, – I think I think King's right, though. It's the, ha- it's the haves and the have-nots. If you're in a house now, you know, you're probably you, – you are doing okay. Your equity's gone up and your um, – your savings have gone up over the last 12 months. But if you're not in the market, you're going to find it really hard. So I think that's why pr- pu- pushing the brakes you, well, I suppose it's, on it's, by APRA is it's good. Po- it's possibly the case that if you're not in the market now, you're renting for life. Yeah. Oh, I, it's possible. I, it's possible. It's a pretty daunting prospect, though, isn't it? That, you know, I've got three little kids at home. Alan, are they going to be with me until they're... 35? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, sorry to say, James. <laughs> I think you're, so, sometimes I think you're right and then I don't want to think about that anymore. But, yeah, is, 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 that, is that a worry that we're, we have a sort of economy where big groups of people are renting for life? I don't know. Well, uh, it feels like a worry, but... It does. And well, it's certainly different for Australia. A lot of, obviously, a lot of Europeans rent for life and it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. I suppose as long as, you, as, long as you're building up capital somewhere else so that when you retire you're not you know destitute yes yes but it's a different way of sort of thinking about retirement and thinking about how you build assets across the course of your career and life it's yeah it's different for australian i'm not sure lots of australians be ready for that but no that's right um and the other thing on your topic list is iron ore prices yeah. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot going on. We've seen the price come back from sort of $227 US a tonne in May back down to about 120 a, a tonne now. But it's just interesting all these different factors sort of coming into play. We've got Chinese steel mills trying to keep the skies clear for the Winter Olympics next year. So they've been told to curb production. We've got these Chinese power is that uh, shortages. What the, is that what the production curbs are about? Partly. Clear skies for the winter. I thought it was for the um, net zero emissions by 2060. Thing well, both, yeah. So, so th- that's the that's the long-term goal, but yeah. certainly uh, the short-term goal is to have clear skies for the Winter Olympics. So um, right. that's that's part of it. And then you've got uh, these power shortages in, in China, which have been another issue. And then you've got increased supply around the world. So it's just interesting to, to see where iron ore prices are going to land. I think the thing that people forget is that the Australian iron ore majors are still incredibly profitable, even at 120 bucks a ton, even at 100 bucks a ton or 90 bucks a ton. They're still incredibly profitable. So, well, their their average costs are under 20 bucks a ton. Aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, they're sort of around between 15 and 18. So, um, the iron ore majors are sitting back saying, "Oh, well, you know, 227 bucks. That was great, but we'll take 120. We'll take 100. We'll take 90." So. Now, of course, what price are you, uh, is an investor prepared to pay for those stocks is an important question, but it's... Um I had a chat to uh, Marcus Padley yesterday and he was saying that um, uh, he, th- he often thinks about 
what's the post-it note you put, put on your screen at the beginning of the year? Yeah. The one simple thing for that year, right? So for this year it would have been uh, lithium and electric vehicles, right? Yes. Yeah, good call. Uh, batteries and stuff. Uh, he reckons the, the post-it note now is when will iron ore bottom? Yep. Yep. When iron ore, when iron ore bottoms, there's... A lot of opportunities in the iron ore miners. That's what he says. Yeah, is. yeah. Mean. Well, it's it's. I, I don't think that's clear quite yet. Um, no. And, and a lot's going to depend on the Chinese economy. Like we're we're sort of hearing these things out of China that they're going after this COVID uh, zero policy, and that could really weigh on Chinese economic activity. So how does that feed through to demand and uh, demand for iron ore? You know, it's this great story of. The, the Chinese closing Shanghai Disney on the weekend and testing 32,000 people in a, in a night. Did they? Lo- locking the doors and, and testing everyone to, to, to what sort for? of... Because they thought there was a suspected COVID case. Right. And so everyone got sent home at midnight, bust, bust home after, after all being tested, all 32,000 people inside Shanghai Disney. And you sort of think about that and, and it's just a little vignette of how committed they are to COVID zero. So. Well, also how much control they have. I mean, imagine <laughs> trying true. that here. That's true, yeah. It'd just be a riot. <laughs> um, so, but if they're, if they're doing sort of, if they're going to go so hard on testing across the economy and, and keeping COVID to zero, like how do you, we've seen here, you know, you end up with the economy sort of slowing to a sort of uh, crawl. So does that happen in China and does that flow through to iron ore? So that's a Possibly fascinating... Possibly we would never know mm. what's going on over there. We've got a few questions, James. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Jen says, NAB's gone up recently more than ANZ or WBC. Westpac. No. Yeah, WBC. I was wondering if you think NAB is the best of the three banks and this is the reason for the rise or if you think this is a temporary situation. What do you reckon? Well... I think NAB's certainly in a better position than Westpac. Uh, you know, we've talked about Westpac's issues. I don't think there's much between uh, ANZ and NAB, with one caveat, and that's that ANZ's had huge problems mortgage processing. They, they really fell behind the eight ball. So perhaps there's a bit of a sense that NAB's mortgage book's growing quicker than the other two, and, and that's the market's giving them the nod for that. Um, you know, Ross McEwen's a pretty experienced banker. He, he's not going to stuff much up. So that, that, they might be, there might be a bit of a feeling that he's the, uh, the safe pair of hands there. Yeah, well, um, yeah. So, but it has gone up recently more than ANZ and Westpac. So, yeah, maybe that's the view in the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, brackets, not my real name, which I love because we don't know who you are. <laughs> anyway, Dan, you can call yourself... <laughs> You could give us your real name and it wouldn't make any difference. Anyway, Dan, Dan says, not some new trading apps, i.e. Superhero, offer free trades on some ETFs. How do they make money? Do they take a clip on your capital gain? They certainly do not take a clip on your capital gain, Dan. However, uh, in many cases, um, uh, share trading has become a feature of other other propositions. It's become a way to get people to spend money on other things. And the way they make money is by uh, firstly um, making some interest on money that you uh, you uh, deposit with them, that's sitting with them, the, what's called the float. 
um, and they'll sell you other things. Yes, they'll hope you your next trade isn't an ETF, it's on something they can charge you for. So yeah. um, it, it's sort of like the, the, the old school loss leader in the, yeah. in the retail world. It's, I think some, sort of things sometimes called freemium. Yes, indeed, indeed. Freemium. Um, do you want to read the next one? Sure. Uh, it's from Tim. Tim, hi, Alan. I've been enjoying your humble Eureka report since year one. Thank you. It's been marvellous. My question is, is now the time to get into a bond fund? I haven't ventured into bonds ever because, like you, I've found better value elsewhere. But something feels different now, and perhaps some diversification is wise. Uh, he's suggesting Chris Joy's Cooler Bar Capital Fund looks interesting, for example. Well, um, the, first que- the first answer is, Tim, absolutely not. <laughs> Stay away from bonds like the plague because they're going nowhere but down in value because the yield on bonds is going up. Yes. We know it is. It's one of the rare times in investing where you actually know something's going to happen, <laughs> which is that the price of bonds is going to go down. Yes. yes. Uh, however... Having said that, Chris Joy's Coolabar Capital Fund is terrific. Chris Joy is really good, and he invests very well in mainly in bank um, uh, bank uh, bonds, bank issued bonds. Yeah, but even he's going to struggle, I reckon. Yeah, well, and I guess the the extension of that is bond proxies in the share market might be uh, might find life tough for the next little while as well. You know, utilities and sure telcos and that sort of stuff. So. Well, they've had a they've had a tailwind for a while. Exactly, exactly. which is the interest rates coming down. Yeah, but it's interesting. You might get this situation, Alan, where you, if we had a bear market, the the defensives, those bond proxies, they're not going to be very defensive at all because bond yields are rising. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, uh, Matt says hi, Alan, and the True Money Cafe. <laughs> Thank you very much. Long time listener. Uh, first time question, but having heard it a dozen times, I acknowledge general advice only. Yes, indeed. Say a couple of, say a couple in their early forties wishes to retire ahead of sixty-five, when they get full and unpenalised access to the super. What are what are some strategies to help in the transition? Having invested diligently through our twenties and thirties, we're in the fortunate position to have soon paid off a house and some assets by early 50s. The plan is to solely sell down these assets when aged between 55 and 65 to fund early retirement. And then at 65, receive full access to super. Am I missing anything or are there other strategies that wouldn't trigger CGT events and allow us to hold on to some assets? Side note, I can honestly put part of my investing success down to making money, which I read nearly 15 years ago. Uh, Love your work. So thanks, okay, all right, well, uh, we can't give personal advice, Matt. So, as j- in general terms, uh, you got to pay ca- capital gains tax if you sell. If you sell an asset, I mean, happily, Mr. Costello discounted the capital gains tax in 1999 to 50 percent. So, if you've held it for more than one year, which you have, it's 50 percent. But still, you got to pay it. I mean. And Just, the, the, the other thing is, do you really want to retire at 65? Where's the fun in that? You know, you're going to be living till you're 95 these days, so keep keep going for a bit, I reckon. Well, it's interesting. I watch this show called Pointless, which is a uh, British uh, quiz show. Yep. Yes. And they have all these contestants come on, and uh, every one of them, seems to me, is, is retired. <laughs> and they look about 35. 
Right. They're all retiring. I mean, everyone's retiring early. I mean, but you're right. What are you going to do? Yeah. Because everyone's living to 90, so you're retiring right. halfway through your life. That's right. You're 65, you're hitting your peak. Particularly in a, um, you know, we're in an ageing population well, where there are going to be labour shortages, m- milk it for all it's worth. I'm pushing 70. I'll turn 70 no. next year. And I'm peaking. Exactly. I am peaking right You've now. You've got 20 years to go, Alan. Exactly. Don't sell anything. Everyone will be Don't sick of you. Don't sell anything, Matt. Don't sell anything. Well, there you go. There's advice, <laughs> Matt. Don't sell yeah, anything. Yeah. No, well, it'd be good to have assets that are paying an income that will fund your retirement. rather Because yeah. the trouble with selling assets to retire with is you've got to take those assets, or what people tend to do, is take those assets along to a financial advisor yes, who will yes. uh, build a swimming pool from them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, well, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I or, think or if, perhaps a beach house. I mean, uh, we've got to say, Matt's in an awesome position to be even sort of considering this, but I think you'd, you'd want, you just want to be really careful about... Um, Making that transition, I think it sounds like you can, you know, potentially afford to do it. But whether it's the right thing, you know, I don't know. You can read the last question from Graham oh, uh, James yes. because you, you, I'm sure, are an expert on green origin, are you? Indeed. Uh, Graham says, Hi, there's been a lot of talk lately about the benefits of green hydrogen, but no mention at all of the risks or downside. Are there any? Simple logic suggests that this is inevitable, that some hydrogen will escape into the atmosphere and being the lightest of all elements will rise and at some point will reach the ozone layer. Now, uh, uh, Graham's got some elementary high school physics to suggest this might result in a reaction. I'm not going to read the uh, chemical reaction there. Um, Graham, but but suffice to say, uh, there is... Well, suffice to say, Graham's question is, uh, are there potential risks and downsides of green hydrogen? Uh, Alan, well, I, I turn to you. I haven't read anything about those risks. This is the first I've heard of it, Graham. So I think we need to investigate this. Green hydrogen is certainly seen as... And by, by the way, green hydrogen simply means hydrogen that is produced with renewable energy. Because the way they make hydrogen is by electrolyzing water, splitting the molecules, uh, water molecules, H2O, into hydrogen and oxygen, and the oxygen goes into the atmosphere and they capture the hydrogen. So that's what that's about. But they, but the um, trouble is you've got to use renewable energy, otherwise what's the point? Hydrogen, they reckon, is going to drive trucks. Yep. Boats. Probably not cars. Big probably ships. ships. Um so there's a lot of interest in making hydrogen. Uh, Andrew Forrest is trying to turn Fortescue metals, the iron ore miner, into a hydrogen producer. He's, he's created a separate division. Yeah. And I think they've done some deals already. Yeah, well, they've, they've recently announced that they're going to build an electrolyzer factory in Queensland. They're yep. putting a billion dollars into that. So I think that's the, that's the challenge with green hydrogen. You can make it work small scale, but now they need to industrialise it and make it giant scale. But, giant scale, exactly. Um, but look, you've got to say with Fortescue, they are very good at running giant infrastructure projects. That's basically what a big iron ore mine is. And, you know, Twiggy Forrest is a guy who does not take note for an answer and has shown he can pull this stuff off. So, um, and look, there's still a lot of technology issues to be solved around green hydrogen, transporting it is one and, and the sort of mass scale production. But uh, the, the, the momentum is there. And I think 
Um, but now, but now Graham's told us we have to worry about the ozone layer, and there's always something to bloody well worry about. There, there is. Jesus, uh, Graham. My, my sense, Graham, is that the benefits will outweigh any minor issues. But, but I've got to say, your um, your well, chemistry, uh, as elementary as it may be, is better than mine. Well, he says H two plus O three equals H two O plus O two. Yeah. Sounds right to me, but I reckon, <laughs> what does it mean? Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? There's, but you, I don't know. There's going to be a downside. I mean, there will be a downside to all these technologies in some way, but well, you've got to move the dial forward. Well, that's where we have to end it, James. Thank it, you, Alan. It's been great. Yeah, good fun. And uh, remember, everyone, our uh, advice, such as it was today, is uh, general advice, not personal advice. Thanks for listening. You got any questions? We'll be back next week. Um, Send the questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and he is James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist for the Financial Review. Thanks for having me, Alan. 